I suspect that if most people were asked what they like about the American healthcare system, it's that here in the US, we have some of the best surgeons, specialists, and some of the best, most innovative treatments in the world, and that these treatments are constantly improving. But what if, when you need it the most, you don't have access to these specialized treatments because the insurance company that runs your healthcare plan refuses to authorize it? What does this mean for you, for others who are suffering from debilitating or potentially terminal illnesses when perhaps only one possible treatment exists? And more broadly, what does this mean for the very progress of medicine in this country, which after all depends on the ability to deliver new and innovative medical breakthroughs? Today on Arissa Watch, The Cutting Edge. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins. Thank you so much for joining me. People may not know this, but most healthcare plans have an exclusion for treatments that are deemed experimental or investigational. What this means is that insurance companies can refuse to authorize and pay for medicines and treatments that are too new, too risky, or too expensive. And in some cases, they have a legitimate foot to stand on. But the problem with standing on one foot is balance. Here, it's the insurance company that, of course, has a financial stake in purely cost-cutting measures that gets to make what are truly medical decisions under contracts that they have written. And when it comes to medical treatments that are necessary to save lives or give people a decent quality of life, shouldn't these decisions be made in a more rational and less conflicted manner? Joining me today is Erin Monheim. Aaron is 34 years old and has a three-year-old daughter. He also has relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. This was diagnosed recently in August of 2019, and already he walks with a cane much of the time, and his condition is rapidly getting worse. MS is a terrible disease, but Aaron has a particularly unusual and aggressive form and his prospects of becoming totally disabled in the not-too-distant future are high. The treatments he's been given so far are not working. Aaron came to one of my colleagues at Cantor & Cantor, Elizabeth Green, because his doctors have recommended that he undergo autologous hematopoietic cell transplantation, a type of stem cell transplant. Stem cell transplants have been around now for a long time for treatment of blood and bone cancers, but they've also been used as treatment for people with MS since about 2013. In 2019, a paper came out from the American Society of Blood and Marrow Transplantation in which a panel of experts both in MS and in stem cell transplants concluded that patients that were most likely to benefit from this type of cell transplant are those who are relatively young, with a relatively short duration of MS, who have the relapsing, remitting form of MS, who can still walk, and for whom other treatments have already failed. In other words, Aaron is the perfect candidate for this treatment, which is likely to be the only available option to stave off the rapid progression of his disease. And he will only be the perfect candidate for a short period of time. But so far, his Kaiser Healthcare plan has refused to authorize this treatment, saying it's experimental. 
Thank you so much for being here, Aaron. Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, can you tell me what it was like when you first found out that you had MS? Just give me a little background about what happened. Yeah, so I was, um, I, I'm 34 years old now. I got diagnosed in October of 2019. Um, and my MS went undiagnosed for, I had my first symptoms in 2009. So it went roughly about 10 years undiagnosed. Um, I, the, a lot of the kind of my diagnosing symptoms were uh, that I had uh, like sciatic pain down the left side, my left side. So going down my left leg and it would just get like the tops of my legs would get numb, which was not a very characteristic sign of sciatic pain. So after I went to the ER a few times uh, because of urinary incontinence um, and my wife is an ER nurse as well. So eventually, you know, we, we were stuck. We were waiting for a, a nerve conduction study on my legs to figure out why my, the numbness was there because the, we met with a neurosurgeon and there was nothing on the MRI that, that showed kind of what would be causing the numbness on the tops of my legs. And so we went to the doctor and she asked to have my sacrum MRI. And then on, I think it was October 6th, I got the call from my, my doctor telling me that I had um, multiple T2 hyperintense lesions and that I had a, a diagnosis of relapsing remitting MS. Wow. So were, was this a surprise um, because you're so young and especially considering the symptoms have been going on for 10 years, you would have been in your early 20s then, I suppose. Was it hard to diagnose for that reason and not really suspected or were they suspecting that's what it was? No, I, I don't think they were suspecting that's what it was. I mean, I have I don't have any real risk factors for MS. Um, I have nobody in my family with MS. I have very little autoimmune disorders in my family. The the one big flag like risk factor that I that I did have is um is that I had Epstein Barr when I was um about 17, um, 18. And so that was that's kind of a big risk factor, at least thought to be a risk factor. And then I had uh low vitamin D levels. There weren't really a whole lot of things that would have tipped off the providers to think about MS. I think the the biggest thing, you know, we probably maybe could have found out in in 2014 I had I had what was a flare where it was very similar symptoms. I had urinary incontinence and back pain and uh shooting pain down my leg and uh numbness and whatnot. And I I mean it it just it just went away. So it kind of, you know, it's that that's what MS does. So it just went away and I kind of went back to my baseline and I didn't really feel different up until my, my diagnosing flare in July of 2019. That's when I kind of had my first major flare and I started to have um, lasting disability. Prior to that, I did not have any lasting disability. So, so what happened next um, as far as uh, treatments once you got this diagnosis? 
within four days, I was of my diagnosis, I was meeting with a neurologist. And the things that that they do for first line treatments are I got to choose between copaxone and an interferon. And I chose to be on copaxone and efficacy between those two first line drugs is not really that's less side effects. So that's that's what I chose to go on. Um, and so how did how did it work? Did um, did you get any relief? No, I did not. I I so I was on the drug for probably five six weeks, and then I had another flare and another relapse in uh, November of 2019, just before Thanksgiving, and then I kind of started to heal heal from that. I was back to a baseline for maybe a week, and then I had another relapse in December. Right before Christmas, I actually had to have steroid infusion infusions on Christmas Day. So all of those relapses were while I was on Copaxone. And then um, I, I met with my neurologist after the second one, and, and his recommendation was that I go on to Rituxin. So I had some questions about Rituxin, and he was a general neurologist, and he said to me, you know, I'm a general neurologist. Most of the MS patients that I see are stable on first-line drugs and don't have extremely aggressive cases like you do. So he recommended that I go to a like a to an actual MS specialist. So that's that's the physician that I have now. And then it took about three months for me to have my first infusion of rituximab. And and how did how did that um, did that work any better? Um, yeah, I think it I think it worked. I think it's definitely more effective than Copaxone. But um, I had a, a another relapse in July of last year, um, and and kind of what has happened with each relapse. Uh, the one in in November, I had never had double vision before, and I I have double vision. I mean, for all. I guess, you know, permanently now. Wow. Does that impact your work at all? Are you still able to continue working? I I mean, I'm, I'm able to continue working. It's definitely getting to a, to a point where it's far more exhausting to try and read when my, my, my double vision is vertical. So I see words stacked on top of each other. And so reading, especially on like an illuminated screen or something like that, it can be pretty challenging. And and are you worried about being able to continue working? Absolutely. I can imagine. And you you also have a young daughter, is that right? Is that right? A three year old? Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing too is, you know, I yeah, I do have a young daughter and, and I would love to talk about her in a second. But the the one thing that has already happened was when I got diagnosed, I was on a very successful career path. And it's not that, you know, the, the organization that I work for is incredible and I cannot complain with how they have treated me. They've treated me absolutely wonderfully since my diagnosis. And I'm very, very blessed by that. Um, the negative though, is that I was an outside salesperson. So I used to travel three weeks, roughly uh, three weeks a month. And so, you know, my earning potential and everything like that has been completely taken away from me because I can't, 
I can't travel. I can't be a salesperson anymore. So the the amount of earning potential I have, yeah, it's just completely different, which has made me have to go and come to the realization that the way that I thought my life was going to be, it's it's not going to be that way. Wow, that must be really difficult. And and I do want to turn to talking about your daughter um, and, you know, how what the impact has been there and whether you're worried about, you know, being able to continue to take care of your daughter. You know, you said your wife was a nurse, but, you know, it takes a village, as they say. So can you tell me about, you know, just sort of your, the impact there, or if there hasn't been much impact yet, just, you know, about your worries for the future? Yeah. So um, one of one of the big my daughter, what like when she was born, that was the biggest life-changing moment of my entire life. Like far more than 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 getting MS. And I think this is a very, very, very close second. It has completely reframed my life. But when Sloan was born, um, she originally had a, a really low APGAR score when when she was born. So we had to go to the NICU. And at the and when we were in the NICU, I at, the, at that point in time, I was, I was not very healthy. I was 325 pounds and I had just a, a huge vision of my, my own mortality. And I just promised her while we were in the NICU that I would do everything that I could to make sure that I was there to walk her down the aisle. And, and so a month before my MS diagnosis, I had finished um, so it was over the course of about 19, 20 months. Um, I had lost 105 pounds. And so I was super excited. And then I, you know, get diagnosed with a disease, which is already starting to take my ability to walk away from me. It's wow. You know, that really, um, that really touches me. I'm, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you are. And um, my daughter's about to get married. So when you say that that's, you know, what you felt in that moment, you know, or in those moments after she was born, I I really understand. And, um, you know, this, it's really a, you know, really tough situation. And, and yeah. so, um, you know, so ironic when, you know, you had done so much to, um, to try to improve your health, your long-term health and, um, you know, then to get this devastating news. I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful that I, I lost that weight before my diagnosis. I mean, it would have been probably close to impossible. So, I mean, I'm very thankful for that, but, and it's made my, my mobility better than it would have been. So that's at least beneficial. Part of what I'm discussing in in this um, this podcast is, you know, what um, the fact that most people don't realize that these exclusions are there, and even if they do, they don't really know that what it means is, um, you know, the their insurance company or their healthcare plan has a lot of power to say no to what are sometimes the only options uh, for folks, the only treatment options for folks, either to save their lives or to allow them as in your case, to maintain your quality of life potentially. So to me, that's, it's, it's really interesting that um, people don't know about this until, you know, often they're ill 
and it's a it's a heck of a time to have to fight with your insurance company or your healthcare plan over the kind of treatments that you get because you're dealing with the effects of the illness as well and of the treatments. Yeah, the the really interesting thing to to kind of a point that you made there is that this treatment is actually considerably cheaper than a pharmaceutical treatment. Considerably. Well, the, in a way that makes sense because the infusions go on and on and a stem right. cell transplant is an expensive procedure of course because it's you know it's essentially um but but it does you know if it's successful you don't have to continue um you know every 3 months or every 6 months like um like yeah. you do for the infusions. Well, and even on top of that, like a lot of people don't understand like the if you look at the cost of just um, like the reason why this transplant is not included in standards of care, in my opinion, is a hundred percent because there is nobody selling it. There's there's no intellectual property here. You can't go and patent somebody's stem stem cells. The the four drugs that are used in the beam chemotherapy protocol were patented in 1964, 1969, 1977, and 1983. So there's absolutely nothing here from a, from a profit center that can go and, and create profit for anyone. So because of that, there isn't a medical device company or a pharmaceutical we have drugs like, um, you know, even just like an interferon, which is a, a very, very, very basic drug. You know, your first line treatments that are not the generic ones are all almost $100,000 a year. They're, they're anywhere between 70, 70 and $96,000 a year. And it makes you wonder about the new pharmaceutical treatments are often not I'm guessing are often not all that different, not all that more effective than older treatments, but maybe under patents. And and so, you know, there's a yeah. the big profit motive there. Yeah. And a, and a perfect example of that is the is the drug that I'm on. The, the drug that I'm on is rituximab and it is a morine uh, chimeric monoclonal antibody. So that means that it is a monoclonal antibody that is created with both human and mouse protein. That drug was originally created and patented and then that patent ran out, I believe in 2019 and in 2018, a year before that happened, Genentech came out with um, Ocrevus, which is the exact same monoclonal antibody. It's just non-chimeric now. So it doesn't, it's all human-based protein. It's not, there isn't any morine-based protein there anymore. So it's, it's, you know, to your point, that's literally all, all these drug companies are doing is recycling patents, changing something different in a manufacturing issue or, or a manufacturing process or or something like that and then they have a new drug to go and ride the patents with that's absolutely fascinating and um, I'm always surprised I, on you know when I have these discussions for the podcast I I often have one 
fairly narrow topic in mind. And, you know, in every every case so far, this is only my third episode, but in all three episodes, I, you know, I've really, um, people have brought up other issues and it's branched out um, because I think like issues about healthcare bring up so many other important societal issues. And, and like I say, I just want to get the word out there because I think unfortunately people don't often don't focus on these issues until, you know, they're in crisis and, and it's understandable um, because it's complicated. But, um, but if you, um, you know, if you follow the money, it's really interesting what you find and it's, it's not a pretty picture. Um, wow, this, this has been a, a fascinating conversation, Erin, and um, I'm really wishing you the best of luck. You know, these stem cell transplants obviously have been around for many, many, many years now as, as um, mainline treatments for cancer and other things. And and they've been around for a long time, really, for for as treatments for MS, um, or for a couple of decades now, at least. Um, and you know, do seem to be really promising and effective. So I'm um, I'm wishing you the best of luck. And um, again, thank you for for talking about all of this. It's um, important, I think, for everybody to to know about these issues. So thanks again. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Aaron's situation shows how even very good healthcare plans often fail to deliver when patients have conditions that don't respond to standard treatments. For such patients, sometimes the only viable option is an innovative procedure. This isn't to say that it's not important to weigh the costs and benefits, especially of new treatments. An interesting paper from way back in 1997 in the Journal of Contemporary Health Law and Policy addressing experimental exclusions in healthcare plans, recommended that rather than allowing financially conflicted insurers to make these decisions, panels of medical experts should be the ones tasked with doing the cost-benefit calculus and in making these important and complex decisions. This really makes a lot of sense to me, rather than leaving those decisions to insurance companies and for a few who have the time and resources to challenge their insurers to judges. But as things stand now, we have a setup where insurance companies are cutting off access to these critically important drugs and procedures, not only crushing the hopes of patients who are severely or terminally ill, sometimes leading to avoidable death or disability, but also cutting off progress and negating this really wonderful aspect of American medicine. I'd say that's a cost that insurers are pushing onto society, and it's not one we should have to pay for, considering we have some of the best medicine in the world. Today's episode was brought to you by Cantor & Cantor. Our producer is Emily Hopkins. Our composer and engineer is Andrew Payson. Special thanks to Aaron Monheim and to my colleague Elizabeth Green for introducing me to Aaron and his story. New episodes of ERISA Watch will be available the first Friday of every month. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins. See you next time.